It's a real pleasure to be here to discuss my ongoing research on the International Law Commission as an interpreter, for which I have been conducting research in Geneva at the International Law Commission um, in the UN in Geneva uh, for the past few years, and also in relation to which I have been a member of the UK delegation at the Sixth Committee of the UN. Um, just as a usual caveat here, all views are my own. Um, my talk is about the International Law Commission, which is a subsidiary organ of the UN General Assembly, entrusted with the progressive development of international law and its codification. I argue that the International Law Commission interprets international law and that interpretation is, in fact, part of the existing function of the Commission in its mandate. While any actor may interpret international law, the fact that the Commission does so is important for two central reasons. In fact, these two reasons um, appear in their starkest term in the form of a contradiction that the Commission has faced in the past years. On the one hand, the Commission has been criticized heavily as being, as, as being unsuccessful because it no longer prepares documents that are intended to become conventions, um, the instruments that in the collective memory of UN members represent the successes of the Commission. Um, quite the contrary, it is involved in preparing non-binding instruments with the intention of these never being turned into conventions. They are intended to remain non-binding sets of conclusions, sets of guidelines, sets of draft articles. <coughs> and in fact, in relation to some of these uh, non-binding instruments, the Commission discusses and works on topics that it has dealt with in the past. So its work appears to be repetitive and at best academic albeit for some of us, uh, that could be a compliment rather than a criticism. Um, now, on the other hand, um, states, and despite the fact that they, it seems to be a, a criticism that the Commission is unsuccessful, states approach the Commission and its pronouncements with considerable trepidation. Experience has shown that international courts and tribunals use the Commission's pronouncements very often uh, to analyze uh, to for their reasoning. And as at the 1st of January 2018, indicatively, the International Court of Justice had actually used expressly the work of the International Law Commission in 22 cases, 19 contentious proceedings, and three advisory opinions. My work confronts this central uh, contradiction. <coughs> I argue that the Commission interprets international law and that the Commission's interpretive activity serves its long-standing vision to reinforce international law by providing clarity, certainty, and predictability as to the content of international law, thus convincing states to continue to use international law as a medium by which they regulate their affairs. The Commission has interpreted and interprets international law in numerous top topics of work in different fields of international law, from the law of treaties to state responsibility to genocide, uh, crimes against humanity, expulsion of aliens. However, I mainly use as evidence um, in, in my work the Commission's activity in four topics in the field of sources of international law. And these are the 2011 Guide to Practice on Reservations to Treaties, the draft conclusions on subsequent agreements and practice in relation to the interpretation of treaties, these were adopted by the Commission in 2016 on first reading and they will be uh, discussed on second reading in 2018, the current session. The draft guidelines concerning provisional application of treaties and the draft conclusions on peremptory norms of international law use cogens. 
All these involved the interpretation of some provisions of the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, the VCOT, and some of the customary rules that are set forth therein. I place emphasis on these topics for three reasons. First, in these topics, the Commission interprets, interprets existing treaty rules and customary rules. This legal landscape demonstrate, demonstrates the Commission's um, interpretive activity, but all, also allows the inquiry about the rules and methods that the Commission employs for such interpretation. Second, Illustrating that the Commission engages in interpretation of international law in some topics that are not intended to become conventions, but are intended to remain non-binding, allows for an assessment of the Commission's function and challenges the criticism that has been charged at the Commission that it, it is less relevant than before. And third, the rules on sources, such as the law of treaties and use cogens, are systemic rules. They have a systemic impact across the board in in relation to primary rules across various fields of international law. So placing under the spotlight the Commission's interpretive activity in these topics shows the Commission's sustained vision to strengthen international law by convincing states to continue to use it as a medium by which they regulate their international relations. I will structure my talk in six parts. First, I will briefly explain what I mean by interpretation. Second, I will provide some examples of the Commission's interpretive activity and explain some of the objectives um, that the Commission has. Third, I will probe the methods that the Commission employs when interpreting. Fourth, I will demonstrate that interpretation falls squarely within the Commission's existing function, progressive development of international law and its codification. Fifth, I will explain the legal effects of the Commission's interpretive pronouncements. And finally, sixth, I will argue that the Commission's work form, forms part of a vision to strengthen international law by providing clarity, certainty, and predictability. Starting with definitions. So interpretation means determining the meaning of terms and by implication, determining the scope and content of rules. In the law of treaties, the process of ascertaining the existence of a rule so the question would be, what is, is there, is there an international agreement? Is separate and different from the process of determining the content of the rule. So the question there will be resolved by using the, the, the rules on treaty interpretation set forth in Articles 31 and 32 of the VCLT. In relation to customary international law, for, however, these two processes, rule ascertainment and content determination, are entangled in one process that is called identification of custom. In fact, the International Law Commission in its draft conclusions on identification of custom and international law, which again have been adopted in 2016 on first reading and will be discussed in second reading in the current session 2018, implicitly in its commentary, recognizes that interpretation is part of what the Commission terms in identification of custom. Now, the fact that custom identification encompasses both processes, however, ascertainment and content determination, does not mean that interpretation does not occur or that it is not important. Usually, there is a need to determine whether the rule exists and the content of that rule. But there are cases where we may agree that the rule exists, but we 
may disagree as to the precise content of that customary rule. For instance, we may agree that there is a, a rule of innocent passage through the territorial sea under customary international law, but we may um, have a dispute about the precise meaning of innocence, or we may agree that, the, that perhaps under uh, customary international law, states are obliged to pro give prompt, adequate, and effective compensation as part of an expropriation case of a foreign investment, but we may not be clear as to what we mean by prompt. Is that direct, or is it to be given within reasonable time, or is it to be given within due time? Um, which rules of interpretation may apply to custom interpretation is a completely separate matter. In principle, <coughs> custom interpretation cannot be excluded, even if we accept that it is part of an identification process, an entangled process. Now, coming to some examples uh, of the Commission's interpretive activity, I have systematized them in two uh, main categories, albeit I do not think that these are exclusive. These are the ones that I have found myself. So the Commission, one example would be the Commission is interpreting in order to remove ambiguity in the scope and content of a rule. Examples, um, apologies, either ambiguity that <clears throat> was in fact foreseen at the time when the rule was formed. Examples of that would be the constitutive elements of use cogens uh, or the effects on an impermissible reservation or ambiguity that was unforeseen at the time when the rule was being formed or codified. For instance, what do we mean by an objection to a reservation, the meaning of that term? The other scenario where the Commission interprets is in order to determine whether the, the scope of existing rules covers new legal developments. A, a very uh, obvious example is the work of the International Law Commission on the subsequent agreements and practice in relation to treaty interpretation. And in that, that context, the Commission examines whether Articles 31 and 32 of the VCLT cover the pronouncements of conferences of parties or expert treaty bodies. Both these uh, bodies have developed, in fact, after the conclusion of the VCLT. In all these instances, the Commission is concerned with and produces outputs that are intended to clarify the scope and content of treaty and customary rules. In fact, the express goal of the Commission in all of these four projects has been, from their inception, to remove ambiguity, to provide clarity as to the sco scope and content of rules, and provide guidance to those that apply those rules. When interpreting treaty rules, the IOC um, employs the customary rules on treaty interpretation that are set forth in Articles 31 and 32 of the VCL team. This becomes evident when uh, one uh, reads um, the um, commentaries and the reasoning of the Commission in the commentaries. However, it is unclear which rules the Commission applies when it interprets customary international law. In the work on the draft conclusions on um, identification of custom, the Commission implicitly recognizes uh, interpretation as part of custom identification, but does not deal at all with the issue of interpretation of the rules of interpretation of custom. I think uh, it is important to note that in other projects or topics of work, for instance, in the articles on state responsibility, the Commission in its commentaries has hinted to the fact that it considers 
rules other than treaty rules to be susceptible to interpretation, and that even potentially the object and purpose of a rule other than the treaty rule could possibly be a means for interpreting that rule, which implicitly suggests that even customary rules could have uh, an object and purpose. Um, in fact, there is some uh, literature uh, concerning the methods of interpreting customary international law, for instance, Blackman in 1977 suggested that custom could be susceptible to grammatical interpretation um, or um, teleological interpretation, systemic interpretation. Um, and Orek has really more recently has actually given a very, very uh, thorough analysis of um, teleological interpretation of custom through a uh, case of the ICJ and some investment treaty arbitrations. But the Commission does not do that. Now, an important feature of the Commission's interpretive process is that it does not distinguish, at least not overtly, between the process of interpretation of treaties and in the process of interpretation of customary rules in these topics of work. It is involved in a simultaneous process of interpreting custom and treaty. It all begins with the Commission's assertion that some provisions of the VCLT set forth rules of customary international law. Then, in some instances, the Commission identifies a rule of custom and determines the content of that rule, and then presumes that the treaty rule has identical content to that of the customary rule. This exercise may be understood as an implicit application of the customary rule on systemic integration that is set forth in Article 313C of the VCLT. Now, in other instances, the Commission will begin um, from, with interpreting the treaty provision. It will apply the rules on treaty interpretation. And by effect, then, it will determine the content of a customary rule. Now, at first glance, this approach seems rather problematic because it is possible that different means of interpretation will actually deliver different interpretive results. And let me give you an example. The subsequent practice of treaty parties to the VCLT could possibly develop in a different way than the practice of states outside the VCLT. However, another way of understanding the approach of the Commission here is that the Commission operates on an assumption that in the absence of evidence to the contrary, rules of international law are consistent and uniform. Now, the question arises as to whether interpretation falls within uh, the Commission's existing mandate. And, of course, that question also um, determines <clears throat> whether the Commission is exceeding its mandate, but I do not think that this is, uh, this is the reason why the question about whether interpretation falls within the Commission's mandate is important. It is rather important because it can tell us a lot about what the function of the Commission entails. What do we mean by progressive development and codification in international law? I argue that interpretation falls squarely within the Commission's existing functions. The practice of the Commission itself and the UN members, in fact, support this particular uh, proposition. However, what I have not found is any evidence that they classify interpretation as an aspect of codification or as an aspect of progressive development. I think that the nuanced approach is necessary here. 
Interpretation may be an aspect of codification or an aspect of, of progressive development, depending on the type of pronouncement made by the Commission and the alleged rule uh, in question. So codification under the IOC statute contains two instances. First, the restatement of existing law, Lex Lata, where, for instance, extensive practice exists, followed by agreement or by, state, uh, by opinion juris, depending on whether you're looking at a treaty or a, a rule of custom. Second, it may also mean systematization of rules in relation to which extensive state practice exists, but which is not accompanied by agreement or opinion juris. So interpretation is an essential aspect of codification of existing law, because the codifier of existing law lex lata will first determine the content of a, a rule before systematizing it into a restatement. But it is also an essential aspect of codification in its lex inferenda form. An example of that would be uh, an interpretive pronouncement that is based on the extensive practice of states, despite the fact that this extensive practice is not followed by the agreement of treaty parties, for instance, when it comes to a treaty, or uh, is not followed by opinion juris when we're talking about determining the content of a customary rule. Interpretation may also fall within the ambit of progressive development. Now, progressive development uh, under the IOC statute covers two instances of non-law. First, subjects not yet regulated by international law, for instance, where no practice has developed. These are instances uh, that very often uh, are called mistakenly lex verenda. Uh, this is not lex verenda, this is lex contenda, in the sense that we are making a pronouncement as to how international law ought to be, even though practice does not exist. Second, progressive development encircles subjects in regard to which the law has not yet been sufficiently developed in the practice of states. And this is a case of lex verenda, where some yet insufficient uh, state practice exists towards a proposed rule. An interpretive pronouncement which is not supported by sufficient practice, either because such practice has not developed or because it simply uh, has <coughs> insufficiently developed, <coughs> may fall within progressive development. Now, moving on to the legal value and effects of the Commission's interpretive pronouncements, these are not binding or authentic. However, first they may record and obviously also assess uh, means of interpretation, for instance, preparatory works uh, of a treaty. In fact, um, the, for instance, the examples where the Commission has done that is the Code of Crimes Against Peace and Security of Mankind, examined, for instance, the preparatory works of the Genocide Convention, or in its current work on the subsequent agreements and practice, very often goes back and looks at the uh, preparatory works of the VCLT or other means, such as state practice relevant for treaty interpretation or custom identification. And second, the Commission's pronouncements may be seen as an offer of interpretation to states, the actors that make international law. So this interpretive offer may trigger the reaction of states, thus eventually contributing to the establishment of an agreement concerning the interpretation of a treaty or the um, opinion juris uh, concerning customary rules. Yet in practice, not all governments make comments on all topics. Uh, and the content, length, and quality of their comments vary. 
A number of reasons may explain this um, inaction. Some states may not have the bureaucratic capacity to assess and um, reply to the Commission's work. In fact, some ministries of foreign affairs may have a very small number of legal advisors, either in capital or in their mission in New York. And even bigger bureaucracies face a real challenge to be able to assess in detail the Commission's pronouncements, the periodic pronouncements, the, the uh, Commission's requests for questionnaires and answers from, from and comments for, from governments, uh, and even the final outputs of the Commission. Um, and this is especially so given the growing um, number of uh, different topics that the Commission deals with, but also the growing quality, the detail um, of the Commission's work. Another reason could be that a state might not consider that the particular uh, interest of its, uh, one of its interests could be affected by that pronouncement. Or it might want to keep its options open. Or uh, in fact, it might want to avoid making any reference to a particular topic because it wants to avoid drawing attention to it. However, inaction of states may produce legal effects. So it may have legal significance as an acquiescence um, under two conditions. First, circumstances exist, have to exist, that call for some reaction. And second, the silent state is in a position to react within sufficient time. Now, um, capacity to react in that context does not have to do with bureaucratic capacity. It has to do with knowledge. Now, the two scenarios that can be envisaged here um, would be the following. First, whether inaction of states vis-a-vis -vis the pronouncements of the IOC per se could be acquiescence. Or second, whether the inaction of some states vis-a-vis -vis the responses of other governments to the work of the IOC could be taken as acquiescence. Now, coming to, in relation to both, the threshold of knowledge will be met. Um, this is because the work of the International Law Commission is widely publicized through the Sixth Committee, and also the responses of governments are widely publicized through the Sixth Committee and the UN uh, Secretariat. Coming to circumstances that require a reaction, I think that we need to be careful here, and the crucial point at which we, we ought to be looking at um, examining at least the inaction should be the final stage of the Commission's um, work on a project. Because at that stage, the Commission is not revising the topic anymore, unless, of course, it is asked, specifically requested to do so by the General Assembly. Concerning inaction vis-a-vis -vis the Commission's pronouncements per se, I think it is unlikely that um, these would constitute circumstances that call for the reaction of states. Um, it has been even doubted today whether um, pronouncements of expert treaty bodies um, that have a specific mandate, have been specifically created and have been given functions in relation to particular treaties, uh, could possibly be circumstances that call the, for the reaction of treaty parties. All the more so, for sure, I, I, I do not see how we would be able to argue uh, the, the fact that the Commission's pronouncements could, have, could constitute such circumstances, given that the Commission does not have a special mandate concerning a particular treaty or particular customary rule. Um, further, if we were to make that argument, it would entail that the interactive process between the six committee, the governments, and the International Law Commission 
is an opt-out system. In other words, states would have to react in the sixth committee in order not to agree with the Commission's uh, pronouncements. And in practice, this is not the case. Um, concerning whether reactions of some governments to the pronouncements of the Commission call for the reaction of other governments, now, it has been argued that a state is expected to respond to an act or claim of another state when, it in, when its interests and rights are infringed by such act or claim. One argument could be that all states may have an interest in the formation and interpretation of secondary rules such as those on, on um, the law of treaties, use kogans, um, law of state responsibility, because these are systemic rules that will apply in relation to all fields of international law, unless, of course, they're deviated uh, from by uh, Lex Specialis. The same could be said, uh, but for a completely different reason that has to do with the community-based nature of the primary obligations in relation to rules concerning, for instance, the prohibition of genocide, uh, crimes against humanity, um, even the uh, protection of the atmosphere or rules concerning the high seas. However, it, has, it does not necessarily follow that an acceptance or rejection by a state about the content of these rules would directly affect the interests of all other states. Another argument that could be made would be that, uh, again, concerning rules that are uh, general rules of international law, such as identification of custom, use against law of treaties, state responsibility, it would be difficult to identify other circumstances that could call for the reaction of states other than the specific institutional framework that has been created under the UN Charter for Progressive Development and Codification. The alternative setting would be each time to be assessing in action uh, whenever you have a claim in relation to a primary rule. And that obviously would make uh, the assessment of inaction um, and so assessment as to whether agreement or opinion juris has uh, arisen very difficult. But I do not think that this is something special for these particular rules. This is part of the, the nature of public international law more, more generally as, as a decentralized uh, lawmaking uh, process. And again, the alternative would mean that the Sixth Committee is an opt-out system. Perhaps um, an approach that allows for some gradation could be more appropriate here. So in relation to some pronouncements, the practice of states may be concordant and overwhelming in accepting or rejecting a pronouncement as re restating the content of an existing rule. Inaction by other states in that context may be relevant as a quiescence. Further, an interpreter, and I think this is quite important to remember, an interpreter or applier of the law will not only assess inaction uh, and by implication some agreement or opinion juris only by reference to inaction in relation to the work of the IOC. Um, many uh, different means will be examined together and the assessment will not depend exclusively on um, the inaction of states in the Sixth Committee. Now, in the current state of international law, the Commission's pronouncements per se do not constitute circumstances that call for the reaction of uh, states and governments. And the responses of governments to the Commission's pronouncements are not generally, at least, circumstances that would call for the reaction of other states. Tacit acquiescence, tacit agreement will be difficult to establish in that context. Nevertheless, in practice, 
whenever governments do not react, it is likely that international courts and tribunals and also national courts will rely on the Commission's work. Now, one way of um, understanding in positivist language this jurisprudential practice is that the Commission's pronouncements are being used as a subsidiary means for determining the content of rules of custom and rules of based on a treaty um, under the within the meaning of Article 38 of the ICJ stat statute. And this is consistent with the recognition that the Commission both records and assesses means uh, of um, identification or interpretation. Another argument could also be made that the Commission's pronouncements, per se, are a supplementary means of interpretation, at least under, uh, in relation to treaties. Now, be that as it may, the fact remains that um, the Commission's um, work is likely to receive more attention and use, um, especially where, owing to the distinctive features of the Commission and its outputs, um, the geographic representation of its composition, uh, the quality of its uh, work, which is usually very high, the use of consensus as a means for adopting um, material um, instruments, um, uh, hoping, of course, um, that this continues, and the uh, interaction of uh, the International Law Commission with the, uh, with the governments. But finally, I think an important question arises here. What, what does that all mean for the Commission's place in international law? Now, the criticism has been charged to the Commission that it is no longer successful because it is engaged in drafting non-binding instruments. It has, in fact, run out of topics um, because it simply repeats uh, working on subjects that it has worked in the past. However, this criticism is misplaced for two reasons, both in political terms and normative terms. First, in the context of the Cold War, and especially in, an, in the decolonization uh, process, during the decolonization process and in, in its aftermath, codification conventions were glorified. In fact, the negotiations and conclusion of the Vienna Con of, the, of a treaty on the law of treaties, which is perceived uh, as the success story of the Commission, um, was an indispensable, indispensable medium through which equality of states would be pronounced. Essentially, newly independent states would participate in the formation of rules by which they would be bound. By contrast, since the 1990s, the world has become multipolar. Uh, that means that we have many more interests and voices um, pronounced and pursued. Um, this, as a result, may make uh, agreement by, uh, by way of negotiations much more difficult to achieve, and that's perhaps why states may uh, find more appealing uh, non-binding instruments, and of course the Commission is there to uh, serve that. Um, second, in the previous century, international law was not as yet a mature body of law. Uh, in 1955, <coughs> Sir Hirsch Lauterpacht in fact criticized the objective of the Commission to codify existing law for being too, nar too narrow. And his reasoning was that at the time there was not sufficient body of customary rules to be codified. 
The 21st century, however, offers a completely different international legal landscape. International law has considerably proliferated and grown, and more actors influence the formation of international law and are involved in its application. The 1990s was a period uh, of enthusiasm for multilateralism and the rise of multilateral treaties governing different fields of international law. Multilateral, uh, sorry, multiple uh, international courts and tribunals, as well as expert treaty bodies, have been established throughout the previous century and have flourished since. These may these apply and interpret specialized treaty, but they treaties, but they also apply, <coughs> interpret and apply rules of general international law, such as rules on reservations, uh, provisional application, use cogens, state responsibility. And also they apply um, general rules, such as, for instance, the law of treaties, and more specifically, treaty interpretation rules, in order to interpret the specialized rules. So their pronouncements may lead to inconsistencies between them concerning the interpretation and application of general rules of international law. Additionally, even though this is not a phenomenon of the 21st century, national courts are increasingly applying international law in a wide variety of areas and including general rules such as um, sources and state responsibility. And this raises a problem of inconsistency on two levels. The one is inconsistencies in the pronouncements between an interpretation and application of general rules between different national courts. And the second um, potential inconsistency is that between national courts and international courts. And this, poten this particular challenge appears in starkest terms in the decisions of national courts not to implement decisions of international courts and tribunals by virtue of annulment proceedings. And some of the cases that come in mind in, are in the field of investment treaty arbitration, the Yukos case versus the Russian Federation and the Sanum versus Laos case. These trends may undermine the clarity, certainty, and predictability of international law and may eventually weaken the confidence of states in international law and contribute to non-compliance, but also temporary or permanent disengagement from international law. Some examples are the arguments that have been made concerning the, um, the withdrawal of the UK from the European Union or the US from the WTO agreement or of the withdrawal of some states uh, from the European Convention on Human Rights or the ICC statute. Some of them are arguments that revolve around treaty interpretation, for instance. Moreover, in relation to the draft conclusions on use Kogans, a member of uh, the International Law Commission in 2016 Georg Nolte made in plenary an, an insightful statement, and I quote, almost 50 years after the adoption of the Articles 53 and 64 of the VCLT, the question is not anymore whether Juskogens exists. Today, we are faced with a different issue, the difficulty of determining which among the many claims according to which a particular rule has the character of Juskogens is well-founded. So the Commission's main concern is that, owing to the uncertainty as to the constitutive elements of Juskogens, far-fetched claims about Juskogens can be made, and this may allow for abuse and may undermine the place of Juskogens in international law. Now, the Commission's interpretive activity addresses this wider challenge. It contributes to elucidating and reaffirming rules of international law by providing a common understanding about their content and adapting them to new legal developments. 
It demonstrates the Commission's sustained vision to strengthen international law by ensuring that states continue to have faith in it as a medium by which they will regulate their conduct. Thank you very much.